the, that like um, air horn that they do in rap music. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. <laughs> hey guys, how's it going? It's Eugene. I'm Alex. And I'm Cody. And this is Building the Brand. And today we're going to talk about how we've been approaching editorial and sort of the fluidity that's required to just make things happen on the go. In the very beginning, when it came to photo shoots, interviews, stories, I would say we're generally super organized or tried our best to be very regimented. And, you know, I think something that we've learned is that some people have this innate ability to tell stories while others treat it like a craft that can be continually improved and owned. And that's something for us that we've tried to really embrace and just look at the, the situation at hand and, and figure out what's the best way to tell a story. Yeah. And among all of us on the team, I think we fall in different places along the spectrum. And oftentimes the approach that's taken is very much a byproduct of each individual's personality uh, and even their personal interests in how stories are told in a different style or in a different flavor. Uh, are you structured and regimented? And are you looking for a really linear narrative? Or are you looking for that feeling of just being present and letting things unfold before you? Yeah, I would definitely say I'm more on the the kind of organized and linear side as opposed to maybe some other people. But one thing to be said is that fine-tuning that process is both difficult and rewarding. In the realm of storytelling, one thing that we noticed over the course of this collection was that we often try to have a game plan, but that's all it is. It's a game plan. It doesn't always come true. You're right. And there are moments where accounting for every single variable is almost counterproductive. And it can take a lot away from the authenticity of a story. You kind of get to this point where you're really forcing something that's not there and that might not work. Yeah. And to your point, Cody, when you plan a story, at times you're looking to support an idea or a movement, but other times it's really just about assuming that fly on the wall type role, so to speak, and really just providing an intimate insight into events that are unfolding. To that point, in the latter example, yeah, you can't really push an agenda. It just sort of unfolds on its own. That age old statement, patience is a virtue can ring true. And sometimes you simply have to go with the flow and embrace it. It's something we've adopted for moments when you really can't schedule anything due to the circumstances. In these situations, you've got to understand that not everything's going to go your way. So you have to be agile and ready to make adjustments on the go. Right. And when there's cannabis and rappers in the mix, planning is one of the least of your concerns. One example is that during our recent cannabis collection, there was a piece that highlighted the current methods of marketing cannabis and the challenges faced by Native American tribesmen in their quest for economic independence. Regarding that story about marketing, we spent a day or an afternoon with Sherbinsky's, a cannabis flower company, and they essentially spent the afternoon preparing a care package for Memphis-based rapper Young Dolph. And to kind of highlight the, the tribal chairman Native American story, we basically flew out to Vegas for 25 hours, sat around waiting 24. for their... Yeah, I know. But 25 is just like, it seemed like 25 hours. <laughs> well, yeah. I, okay, yeah. Alex, Alex thinks it's 24 hours. I'm pretty sure it's 25. Like, like that you got to keep this in. Keep this in. on a solid 60 minutes. Keep it in. Because, no, like you no. You got to factor I, in that, no, that I'm time on the flight tarmac. I am okay? pretty sure it was 25 hours. Because I wouldn't make that up. 
But it was literally, it felt like 25 hours. We were there. Did you have like a timer going? Like, no, I just, I just, I was taking, I was. He hit up uh, Siri when we landed. Like, hey, Siri, set my timer. All right, timer this, this for whole Dublin hours. brand has gone off the rails. But no, seriously, I looked at when, I looked at when we, le- when we left LA and when we arrived in Vegas and when we returned. So I'm pretty sure it was 25 hours. No. Noted. But anyways, to that anyway, point. <laughs> so what we're gonna do now is wait. Just, let me just finish. Okay. So what happened was we were there, and it wasn't. We weren't. We're, we're on their schedule. You know, if they want to eat dinner at eight, but they decide to eat at nine thirty, you just you go with it. Can't tell them to eat dinner right away. You know. But back to you. Cody. If they want to add an hour to a twenty four hour day, they can do it. <laughs> right. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna give you a bit of insight into how we choose to approach stories and a few lessons that we learned from this most recent collection. So take it away, Cody. (laughs) So we recently just dropped a story on Shabinsky's, this cannabis flower company. So Alex Eugene, I've got a few questions for you. What was it like when you first rolled up to Shabinsky's spot? So we we drove the the old trusty rental, the Toyota, down to West Hollywood. I think we parked outside um, this condo, nice looking condo, and we rolled up. You know, we, we unlocked the front gate, went inside and I honestly didn't know what to expect because it, it was essentially a home, right? And opened the door, bunch of nice sneakers in the front and it was a pretty open layout. And right when we walked in, it was a table filled with all things cannabis, right? It was, it was obviously flour. It was a lot of, sounds weird saying this, but paraphernalia, you know, things to prove. <laughs> What it was paraphernalia. <laughs> it, it was makes it sound so like daddish though. It was paraphernalia. But well, I feel it was, the whole space was like it it wasn't set up yet. They had just moved in. So imagine walking into like a pretty nice apartment. Um where it's one of those spaces you walk in and actually the living room is is like below. So yeah. you have to at your ground level you actually walk sort of down in the living room. Um and there was like not really any furnishings. There was like a TV, there was some, a table and some chairs. There was a couch. There was like a Jeff Koons balloon thing. But the most stuff they had was basically all sitting on the dining room table, um, which was just like pound bags of weed. And they had like these crazy pipes. Like one of the guys that's in their crew, Cookie Monsters, his name had literally a cookie monster shaped like pipe that he was smoking out of. And then you can tell them about the, um, machine. Oh yeah. The- so one thing that I found really interesting was despite the fact that cannabis is on its way to becoming this, you know, billion dollar industry, not all parts of the industry are advancing at the same pace. So, I mean, you have obviously advancements in flower, you have branding agencies popping up, but then when it came to actual equipment, you know, it's not as, it's not as, as fine tuned or it's not as, as refined. So they had, basically this machine that was creating a hundred joints at a time. So you had a pre-roll that you put into these individual tubes like cylinders and you would basically, you would basically vibrate a flower inside. And then from there you would just twist the top, but it would do a hundred at a time. And it looked like kind of like a, a sewing machine. What do you mean by vibrate? I mean, it's really going up and down like a sewing needle. Right. To vibrate. Like, you know, when, when you think about like, Panning for gold, if you, if when, you know, the gold rush, aggressively go panning and, for gold, like they, they would shake the, the dirt away, you know, and the gold would be left on the, uh, the grate, the metal grate. It was kind of the same thing. So you'd just lay a bunch of ground weed on the top of this 
um, panel, you'd hit the button and it, the whole thing would sort of start to shake. And then they would remove the slide that was in between the pre-rolled uh, cones, the rolling papers, and all the weed through the vibration would just kind of trickle down into the layers of... That sounds crazy. Was that like state-of-the-art technology? Well, it honestly looked basic. It, so- like, it sounded as if it technically was for the industry. Like No one's really doing things like um, tech products or new gizmos and gadgets for the industry. But when you actually saw it work, I mean, it was basically just plastic with, um, you know, like plastic sort of test tube looking things that they put the um, joints in that take the weed. And I, from what I remember, it was really expensive. It was like a few thousand US dollars for that thing. But yeah, and I they think, were also saying yeah. that it was like they were, it's really hard to get one because they only make Back so order. many. So they were like one of the first to get it because it's brand new to market. And you're looking at this, you know, multi-million or billion dollar industry and the equipment's not even up to can't spec. Can't even get yet. the right equipment. Like people are yeah. still literally hand rolling joints. So for a company like Sherbinsky's that uses that joint as seating, it's crazy to think that they have to give out hundreds of them, and there's only really one machine, or at least one that we saw that was like doing it in mass. Yeah. So the whole goal behind everything they were doing with that machine was just basically fill a cookie jar, a clear cookie jar, with a hundred hundred joints to present to young Dolph as sort of like this, I guess, a seeding marketing campaign of sorts. And that was kind of interesting because when I when I went into that situation, I was on my usual Eugene tip, trying to plan everything out, trying to carve out time to do interviews. But the reality of it is everyone's kind of kind of smoking weed, you know, a little bit medicated. So you can't really force your particular agenda. You just kind of need to take what comes and and that was kind of the one thing that we previously weren't that familiar or maybe not familiar. We just never really encountered that because it was a, it was more of a time and a place. Okay. We're going to, we're going to lock down two hours to do this interview and it's all going to get done in those two hours. But this was a much different environment. Yeah. So do you want to elaborate on that? Like how did you guys approach this story differently to what we've done in the past? I would say we, we approached it to begin with incorrectly. Like I think I, I tried to approach it in a format in a way that it worked quite well in the past. But Don't then, explain what that format is, like an editorial brief. Yeah, I and- mean, we usually come come correct with a brief. We usually plan everything, shot lists, story angles, all these things that we we want to utilize as initial talking points for the foundation. But it was kind of it was kind of enlightening too because I, I went through what I, I had originally planned. And I remember we we set some time aside to do an interview and you know everyone was 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 smoking and I I couldn't be the Debbie Downer and not smoke. So then I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do this interview. The Debbie what? The Debbie Downer. I was like trying to do the interview and it honestly wasn't working. And then it was kind of good for Alex to just pull me aside and be like, yo, you can't, I don't think you can do what you usually do in this circumstance. And maybe Alex can provide what he was seeing me doing as being not the right thing. Well, basically, <laughs> I don't know if I ever pulled you aside, actually. Either happened before the. Yeah. Before you derailed, but I, mean, I don't think it was a derailing. <laughs> what happened was, I mean, you have to imagine, right? Because when we used to work at Hype Beast, or even now, sometimes when you work with brands, these brands really want to know like what the plan is, right? You have a bunch of people who their job is to make sure that everything's planned out. If you're going to interview the CEO, there's like a schedule. So I think we often err on that side of like going into it literally sometimes with a call sheet, right? 
where we have yeah. like, hey, from one to two p.m. there's going to be portrait shots. From two to four there's an interview. You know, it's like really regimented. So then we kind of went into the Sherbinsky story with the same idea, and then we kind of roll in, and then people are smoking, we're hanging out, and then conversation was happening. We were all around talking, so I think I we started to get the microphones out. And I was thinking that you were going to just sort of like mic people up and let it like, let, let the situation happen and just people will be mic. So we're getting it. And then I overhear, Hey, uh, Will, could, could you cut the music off for a second? And oh, Hey, do you mind just putting this lapel? Yeah. You might just have to like go under your shirt. Like just kind of, uh, yeah, and then next, like five minutes later, there's like, Six dudes in a room. It's dead silent. Everyone's super stoned. And Eugene's like, "Hey, can we just step down to the couch real quick and um, it was, just, just yeah, do a quick retrospect, interview?" It didn't. It's super I awkward. I don't know if it was awkward. It just it didn't provide. It wasn't a vehicle towards the best story because you're kind of pulling people out of the element, right? Eugene, do you remember what your initial angle was going into the story? Like, how did that differ to how it actually turned out? I mean, we went in actually. Even the whole premise of us going there was on a whim. We, I think we got contacted like, you know, a few hours before and they're like, yo, you should come down. Like the guys at Sherbinsky is like, you should come down and check this out. It'll be really cool, really special. And you know, when I, I was thinking to myself, honestly, I'm, I, it's not an issue for me to step into any situation and even without proper planning to be able to, to get something out of it and to talk to them. But I just think the way I personally approached it was just incorrect. You were, you were forcing, forcing the situation. Whereas opposed to like, if we're standing around the table and maybe I didn't have them mic'd up properly, I just had a handheld, you know, H5 and I could capture gen the general ambiance and generally usable audio. I think that would have been much more authentic. If I could just jump in real quick, Alex, maybe you could tell everyone like why Shabinsky's what, why did we decide to do a story on them? Well, I had, I had worked with the guys before, like in 2015 for a, small branding thing where I essentially helped them out with some of their brand identity, like their logos and their colors and stuff. So <clears throat> that's where the relationship started. And Will and those guys always knew that we all had a background from Hype Beast. So obviously that's sort of inherently tied to like their culture as well. And they're very well aware of it. So I think they trust our aesthetic and our point of view. Um, so just clarify what Will's role is at Shabinsky's? Will, Will's basically one of the partners in Sherbinsky's. So he kind of handles a lot of the business and the legal side of the brand. Whereas Mario, who's the other counterpart, is the product guy. Like he's an OG grower. He's been in the game um, since before Will was actually in the picture. Uh, he's created a bunch of strains. So that's why their partnership makes a lot of sense because Will brings um, the business expertise and sort of the know-how because he also has a background in the legal side of the cannabis industry. Whereas Mario is kind of the proof in the pudding. He's been in the game for a while. He's got all the right connections. People trust his strains, so on and so forth. All right. So going back to the, the story, Eugene, so you kind of had to change your approach. Yeah. So what was your biggest takeaway from all of that? Story aside, just in terms of how to approach things, it's that sometimes you go in with that narrative that you want to you want to validate or you want to explore. But by just actually going and being that fly on the wall, I think Alex kind of put it the best. Like sometimes you just want to be the fly on the wall. The narrative sort of appears after the fact. And I, I've known that, but I think this was more kind of taking a looser approach and just having the confidence that, hey, you know what? Things will unveil themselves 
with time and with, with sort of, um, analysis looking back as opposed to needing to be in the moment and being very regimented. Like, Hey, it has to be like this. Cause sometimes, I mean, I've, I've experienced in the past too. It's like what you think will be interesting isn't always all that interesting. You need to kind of change lanes. So is there more to this story, Alex? After you guys packed a hundred joints? Yeah, that, that was just the beginning. I mean, there was really no schedule to the day. Um, so we spent what, three, four hours there? Yeah, about that. I think we spent like three or four hours there. And again, over the course of that three or four hours, the two of us are kind of adjusting or realizing that there's actually no schedule or rhyme or reason and that either we're going to be in it for the long haul through the rest of the day or we're going to somehow make an excuse and exit and not really get much of a story. So we ended up just sticking around for a while and we're like, well, basically we'll spend the rest of the day with these guys. Uh, young Dolph, who we thought was going to come to their office and meet us and um, get some product and whatever, that didn't end up happening. So we ended up going to the Hollywood Hills where Young Dolph had, a, I guess, a rented home or an Airbnb yeah, yeah, yeah. or something. Um, and this was like right around sunset. So it must have been around 7 or something like that. 7 p.m. Yeah. So Eugene, do you want to paint the picture a little bit for us? What was it like when you rolled up to Young Dolph's mansion? Yeah, so I think he had rented a mansion. He was performing that night. And it was so very, very prototypical rapper life. There was, I think there was like a, like a Lamborghini outside being washed. And I think there was a Bentley or something like that. It wasn't, it wasn't like a sports car, but it was like an expensive car. And it was being washed. Um, and, you know, when we first walked in, it was super dark in there. Bunch of, bunch of people just hanging out, um, chilling. And we got led into the dining room and it was just like kind of this enclosed dining room. And it was kind of a, a tense moment. You're just, you're trying to exchange pleasantries or like, Hey, what's up? You know, give someone a handshake. And from there you were, we were, I mean, it's not that I was scared, but I would, I knew that I was in a position where this is not my world. I'm here to just be present as these guys do their thing. I mean, maybe it's the fact that young Dolph got shot up a hundred times the week before that maybe played into it. But I was just like, I was there chilling just on the side. Um, I was recording, just passively recording. We didn't take any photos and because we just weren't sure what the whole vibe was. And eventually they started passing around a handful of joints and that kind of, that kind of ease. I wouldn't even say it's tension. That's the wrong way of putting it because I don't think there was anything tense about it. It was just like that sort of was the communal thing that opened everyone up, right? I don't even know if anyone else felt tense, but I think that we probably just felt tense because we were out of our element. I think we like, just I think yeah. it's a it's a pre, it was a pretty non-threatening scene. I just think again, we had a different picture in our head of how that day was going to go. I think it's cuz we were also reporting on it. Like you're not sure if people want this on the record. I think that's kind of what I was like uncertain about cuz there was no sort of clarification that hey, everything here is going to be on the record or we're going to capture this moment because it was in like a private person's home. Like, and it's, I mean, you're basically exchanging cannabis. <laughs> That's how I felt anyways. Yeah. I think, I think it was a lot of, again, I think this is sort of what this whole story is about is like, it was a lot of internal feelings, but just getting comfortable with a different style of creating a story because there was a lot of, unspoken unplanned stuff but that's kind of how that 
story was unfolding, right? Because even again, I don't think that it was a. Th- I don't think we were a threat to them by. We're two Asian guys. No, no, no threat. No, I don't think we were a threat to those guys by being there. I don't think, honestly, if we'd have probably came right in and started taking photos, I don't even know if anyone would have cared. To be honest, everybody was too stoned to even notice. I think that it was just we felt uncomfortable because we had never been in a situation like that where we're trying to get something and we don't know how to act. So it was a, it was a lot of like our own shit that we were feeling. Eugene, so... Without spoiling the story for everyone, what was the purpose of this exchange? So they were basically there to create marketing assets. I mean, that's what I took away. It was like, hey, it's no different than me sending you a pair of sneakers and you talking about, oh, these are the sneakers I got from XYZ brand. And in this instance, you know, the first, like 75% of the, of this meeting was just like chilling, talking. And then towards the latter half of it or the end of it, they were started to sort of push the agenda a bit more and be like, Hey, you know what? I would, I think in the back of their minds, it'd be like, it'd be great if we got some sort of video of young Dolph who has, you know, almost 2 million Instagram followers talking about Sherbinsky's. So that's kind of how it all played out. And, it, you know, towards the end there, I, I, I remember seeing it very vividly just like play on my mind. I was like, what's going to happen is like, they're going to start talking about the weed, um, talking about, you know, leaving that, that cookie jar. And I remember, I don't remember who it was. It might've been Mr. Shabinsky himself who kind of pulled out the, his iPhone and started like interviewed him on the spot about the, about the cannabis, about Shabinsky's. So that's kind of what I I remember playing out. So did Mr. Shabinsky know uh, young Dolph. So young, young Dolph is a friend of Cookie Monsters. Right. And that's kind of how the whole relationship developed. So it's a very organic relationship. And I, that's one thing Sherbinsky has been really good at as a brand is just like all these people that they know and they interact with, they're just friends. Alex, what was his, what was his demeanor like when you guys walked into the, into the mansion? What was he like with you guys? Uh, I mean, we didn't really talk to him that much. I think he was just like hanging out. There was, he was basically getting shown the different products. So like G who works for Sherbinsky's who like, um, is kind of in the streetwear game. He used to work for diamond supply and all this other stuff. He's like the, the out there dude. He's like going to meetings like this all day, every day, going backstage at concerts, like, you know, giving people product, like being the face of the brand in the mix. So he kind of got there before we did actually. And he was sort of there just showing him. So imagine, it's like he's showing the menu, but it's not a paper menu. It's literally like the bags of the menu, you know? So we were, um, we were just sort of there watching what was, but I actually think that go, you're the thing that for you, Eugene, or even myself, like I think that you're in a more advantageous position in stories like that because you're the least threatening person. So actually you have the ability to get way more content from something. If you go into something, if you go into some, a situation and you're very familiar with that world, there's going to be an inherent just sort of like uh, pride. Like there's going to be a little bit of unspoken beef. Whereas if you go into something not of that world, you can play the dumb card, which I know you're not good at doing because you like to try to overcompensate for things and like, and, and pretend like, you know, but like, I think if you look at some of the best journalists in the world, even though they know something, they'll ask a question in an interview 
I, they, they know I, the I, answer I know. to, but they they're pressing the buttons because they get to play dumb by being in that journalist role. They're not trying to pretend like they know as much as a person because they're there to get that person's yeah. in point of view. I, I understand. So basically, you're saying that by virtue of just being positioned as quote unquote media, you have the ability to ask questions that other people would just assume are known. Yeah, like us getting more comfortable with being uncomfortable is to our benefit because we can get more content from that because we don't have to feel like we're ready and we don't have to feel like we have the answers and we're prepped. Yeah. We can just ask questions and be dumb. You know what I mean? Like we could just be dumb and be like, Oh, like what is, is this? Oh, well it's a cookie monster shaped pipe. Well, what's a pipe? You know what I mean? Like you could actually be that if you wanted to and get all that stuff on the record. Is that something you kind of took away from this experience? I think so, because I think that me personally, I'm also guilty of it. Like I, I like to, I'm really good at pretending like I know something that I don't know. Like I'm sure people could troll me all the time and say something like, Oh, have you heard of that new artist? So-and-so and they just make it up. I'll be like, Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, uh, yeah, I've heard a couple of things from them, you know, <laughs> but like, so I'm so guilty of that. But I think that in the context of what we're doing for making, just getting more comfortable with yeah. being a little bit out of the know. Right. Yeah. And therefore educating myself and all of the people that are listening to our stories and reading our stories. Right. So going forward now, like with our with our upcoming stories, how are you guys gonna identify when when's the right time to be fluid? When's the right time to approach something in a super structured manner? I mean, what we currently do is not incorrect. It's just knowing when you need to pull the shoot and just pick plan B and knowing that, hey, you know what? I've, I've entered this opportunity with this in mind. And the minute something suggests that it won't work out, just be, just toss it aside. You're saying you're going to take this approach with every story that, that you can, that we do now. Yeah. Because, you know, it's, it's just knowing that a plan B or C just needs to exist because in my previous experiences, there was no need for a plan B or C because it was so defined plan A, even though it was defined between both parties. Now it's not always the case. You're just kind of there. And I also have confidence in, you know, people like yourself, Cody, Alex, just the team around us that we can go into this situation, not getting what we thought we'd get, but still being the, still being very confident that what we, whatever story we build out of it makes sense. And it's also, Part what we what we acquire in terms of narrative and and content, but also just our own personal insights. What are some of the benefits would you say of having a structured approach? It just it just reduces some of the guesswork, you know. And I I think it just doesn't hurt to be a little bit more methodical and planned, and just knowing you're you know some things require you to be very organized and some things, you know, are going to be thrown at you and you, you don't know how to react, but just by virtue of knowing that I will figure a way out of this situation or how to best utilize what's in front of me. That's the, that's the biggest takeaway for me. Does giving up that control with this hybrid approach, does that make you feel uncomfortable? I think maybe in the beginning, I think even myself when Alex like, yo, you just need to roll with it a bit more. I see myself, no, I think we should be organized. But then, you know, I think that the the actual takeaway from this story was, hey, there's certain things that if I had tried to plan it exactly to a T how I wanted it to turn out, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been 
satisfactory in my eyes. So by, you know, just allowing it to kind of take shape on its own, I think that was a lot more impactful. Uh, I mean, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, even to that point, it's just like, what is the best story? And the best story doesn't always mean how I feel it should be done. And I'm okay with that. Right. And Alex, this is obviously your first time kind of taking this fluid approach. What sort of things do you think you could have done better? Personally speaking, I would have, um, just like, I would have been better at mentally preparing myself for it going in. But from not personally speaking, I think the power is really in the team. Meaning, to be honest, I don't think everybody's good at being a chameleon. I don't really think that everybody could balance both and turn one on or off depending on the situation. I think that that's that moment when, as editors, you have to be responsible and say, I could go to this and do it, but maybe I'm not the best person to do it. You know, maybe that's when I just send somebody else to do it, right? Because there's, there's strength in different people's approaches. What we said at the very beginning, there's different personality traits, right? If you look in, I mean, to use an analogy of sport, right? Or a baseball team. I know baseball. <laughs> like just because you, you have a mitt and a baseball doesn't mean you can pitch or you can play center field, right? Like, it's similar, but very different at the same time, I think. So I, sometimes you just really need to be okay with being like, look, maybe this is not my story to do because I'm not really going to get the best story. You know, maybe this is not my story to shoot because I'm not really going to be able to get the best, best photos that represent the best thing of this person or movement or brand or whatever. That was my, my takeaway. Yeah. And, and I think I'm getting better at that at being like, just because I can take photos doesn't mean that I should be the one to take those photos because maybe I'm going to get 50% of what's good, but somebody else could get a hundred percent, you know? How can you expect to go into something more mentally prepared when someone's not really giving you all of the information you need? I don't know, really. I, I think it just takes experience. I think that's what you just gain from doing it. Like, we would have never learned that if we didn't just do it. You know what I mean? Like you can't, I don't really have an answer for how I'd prepare for it, but I could just keep throwing myself into situations where I'm going to do it right. Sometimes I'm going to do it wrong sometimes. And that's really how you learn. Right. So you, you would hope that in 10 years from now, I'm better at more situations than I am today. Right. What do you think those traits look like? Say when you do get to that point in 10 years, how, as a, as an interviewer, what what sort of traits? I think being able to read people is is key, and just knowing when you're pushing the wrong buttons, when you should just go with the flow, when you should find ways to to create a greater sense of connectivity with people, like you know, asking the right questions. It's even it's as simple as that. And I would also I would push back against what Alex said. I think just by virtue of us being in this first situation. I know next time going forward that I can be thrown 10 curveballs, but I'll figure something out, right? That I, I have more confidence going forward. But even if Alex says he doesn't really know the answer, I'm, I'm 100% confident Alex would be able to figure it out. Yeah, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not the type of person that this is the personality thing. I'm not the type of person to plan it. Like I'm not going to plan how to be better at not planning. I'm just going to be would. more open. You know what I mean? I'm just going to... I'm just going to be okay and be more open-minded to being in situations where I'm uncomfortable and not as qualified and hopefully learning a thing or two from each of those situations that over time equip me with certain skills for things, right? 
But like, cause don't you think that that's, that's true? Like when we're a hype beast, right? You're, you're so accustomed to just everybody being a jack of all trades, which is good. And that's what you have to do sometimes when you're small, but are you, you lose that whole idea of like, dude, there's some career journalists who like only do hedge funds, you know, like their whole life has been spent really honing in that craft of doing journalism or whatever photography well in like one sector of culture. And it's different now for sure than in the print world because we can do more. But at the same time, it just, it doesn't mean that we we're not personally should do everything you know yeah you think print digital that whole uh relationship changes things maybe i think it does because you think of how instagram has changed the modern photographer instagram has made it seem like if you post three to six photos of fashion all of a sudden you're a fashion photographer and it's time to move on and then you take some shots of like landscapes and all of a sudden you're a fashion photographer and a landscape photographer and in a matter of 12 months you could be like a photographer for anything but the truth of it is that there's guys who will spend their whole lives being just a fashion photographer and just getting really good at taking waste up fashion shots you know how about for for interviews investigative journalists i don't know i i i think that there is value in being super in-depth in one in one particular perspective but sometimes it makes it more difficult to convey a sense of cohesiveness for people that are just entering and because you always have the expert advice but sometimes you glaze over the fact that there are certain things that are maybe taken for granted because what i i think is more of a more of a skill set for any journalist or any sort of editorial person is that sense of curiosity to ask questions and then be able to take that step back to know how to how to create almost these these stepping stones to know hey you know what i'm not an expert in to your example hedge funds but how do i bring them along so that it's not it's not necessarily providing an opportunity for for certain people and i guess i mean to be honest there's no answer to that because some people are going to be like hey you know what i'm talking about this at a very high level and i need i need an expert who's you know 25 years of the wall street journal Versus someone that's trying to bring along, you know, this perspective. And I, you know, t- to that point, like New York Times, I think does a great job because any one of us can read maybe a deeper, a deeper topic on something, but they do such a good job of explaining it step by step that it allows you to understand everything. And I think that is the, the, the greater skill. And it's not just knowing every single thing about one particular thing. It's about making sure it's communicated properly. And just to cap everything off. Personally, I'm really excited to see how our editorial is going to evolve as we gain more experience doing these types of stories. Yeah. How do you think you've become a better interviewer or just um, like a writer or journalist? The difference, the big difference between what I, the work I did at Hypebeast and what, what we're doing now um, is like we actually, we're actually getting to meet our, the people that we interview face to face and we're actually getting to know them before we dive into, um, the interview, into the editorial. Um, and that also allows us to, you know, formulate an angle that's more authentic. And, you know, recently speaking with Malcolm from Mirage Medicinal, which is another story that we're, we're doing, you know, I kind of asked him straight up, you know, Hey, Malcolm, if you were to write this editorial, 
how would you want, how would you position yourself? How would you position the brand? And now that we're equipped with, um, you know, now that we are, we're able to ask these sorts of questions because we built re- built rapport with someone, I think that has um, a massive impact on the quality of the story, the authenticity of the story. Um, and then also, you know, after the story or the first draft is written, being able to go back to that person again because you've built that rapport, um, it definitely goes a long way. So on that note... Well. <laughs> So on that note, signing off from the Macon newsroom, signing off from Macon, mm. signing off. I'm We're really Cody. bad at conclusions. Just cut it. Just cut it.